of your word, speak to our hearts, and it's in your mighty name, Lord Jesus, that we pray. If you think that this is going to be one of my usual long-winded messages, you're wrong. <laughs> it's going to be very brief with just a few observations, but hopefully they do make an impact on our hearts. And just a reminder, I guess for me, the, the thing that, that came to my mind is even as I was reading through this particular section in Luke chapter 1, verse, beginning in verse 26, was just some of the details that are found there in God's Word. And all these details are, are chock full of truth. It says in verse 26 that in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God unto a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin espoused to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came in unto her and said, Hail thou that art highly favored of the Lord. The Lord is with thee, blessed art thou among women. And when, he, when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and cast in her mind, what manner of salutation this should be. And the angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. And he shall be great, and he shall be called the Son of the Highest. The Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. That's fine. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. Then said Mary unto the angel, How shall this be, seeing I know not a man? And the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that, th that holy thing that shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. And behold, thy cousin Elizabeth, she has also conceived a son in her old age. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For with God nothing shall be impossible. And Mary said, Behold, the handmaid of the Lord, be it unto me according to thy word. And the angel departed from her. Like I said, the thing that kind of just attracted me uh, that I noticed just in the opening verses of this particular section is the details and the details that are significant. I, I think uh, uh, the danger sometimes in reading God's Word, the danger in, at times of even hearing the Christmas story is again thinking, I've heard this before, I, I know this, and, and again, you know, just reading over it and it loses the impact or the meaning that God's Word should have to our heart. And I just want to bring up a couple of details from verses 26 and 27. And the first detail is found there in verse 26 that it's the sixth month. Now, you, again, too, if you're familiar or have read Luke chapter 1, you know, we're picking up kind of midstream in the story because the chapter opens with how God is going to prepare his people for the coming of his son. And how God uses Zacharias and uses Elizabeth, even though they are way past their childbearing years, to bring their son into this world, John, John the Baptist, who would prepare the way for the coming of the Messiah. He would preach repentance to the nation before Jesus began his public ministry. And it really is miraculous. You can read the first 25 verses and see how God is working. So verse 26, when it says the sixth month, it's actually speaking of the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, which also is brought up in verse 36, when Mary is told about her cousin and how that she is just, she's going to go and spend time with her during this time of her pregnancy as well. Detail, sixth month. The other detail that's brought up there in verse 26 is that it's mentioned the specific name of the angel. There are times in Scripture where we see angels mentioned 
But the detail that's mentioned here is that this is the angel Gabriel. The angel Gabriel is only mentioned in one other book of the Bible other than right here in Luke. And the other book of the Bible that the angel Gabriel is mentioned is in Daniel chapter 8 and 9, the book of Daniel. The first time that he's mentioned in chapter 8 is when Daniel has a vision and what he sees in this vision are these different goats and rams and, and the thing is he doesn't understand the meaning of this vision even though the Lord has given him understanding in visions and as he is waiting and acknowledges his lack of understanding or the ability to interpret this he looks to God for an answer and what happens is the angel Gabriel is dispatched to give him understanding of the rise of the next kingdoms and actually, the interesting thing is, is these are world-governing kingdoms. Daniel had been a part, an advisor to Nebuchadnezzar, to the kingdom of Babylon, the first world-governing power. And in his vision, then, he is told about the, the next coming kingdoms, the, of the Medes and of the Persians, and then after them, of the Grecians. So Daniel chapter 8, verse 15, it says that it came to pass when I, even I, Daniel, had seen the vision and sought for the meaning, then behold, there stood before me as the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of Uli, which called and said, Gabriel, make this man to understand the vision. And the rest of the chapter is Gabriel giving him understanding in that vision, specifically the angel Gabriel. But again, then, in the very next chapter... Same thing, the angel Gabriel is sent to give Daniel understanding about the coming of the Messiah. And it says in Daniel chapter 9 verse 21 that while I was speaking in prayer, even the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, touched me about the time of the evening, evening oblation. And he's going to point out how God is going to work in the nation of Israel, but also how God is going to bring forth the Messiah. So that detail about the angel Gabriel, and again to the fact that now he is dispatched to Mary, and, and there's a connection between Daniel chapter 9 and the angel Gabriel's mission in telling Mary how she is to be used. The other detail that is found in verse 27 is that Mary is a virgin. Now there have been some, what I will call, very liberal liberties taken with the interpretation of this and there have been liberal theologians that have tried to say well you know it's just speaking of a handmaid a young woman and I think even in some of the modern translations I'm I read from the old King James but in some of the modern translations they will actually take out the word virgin and they'll just say a young woman who is espoused to a man and the thing is it's a, it's significant that she is a virgin because it is a fulfillment of prophecy. It's found again too in Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14. And again, the fact that she is a virgin is a sign. It is a miraculous sign. It says in Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14, Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. And this is in the Old, uh, the Old Testament. And this is uh, again too, this is the sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. I pointed out, or even read in Matthew chapter 1, how that Emmanuel, the name means God with us. I mean, it's not a sign if a young woman gets pregnant. It is a sign if she gets pregnant without the help of a man. And so that is the sign. And again, too, 
you know, Luke in his account makes it a point to bring up and point out that particular detail of how God is using this young woman, Mary. And it says that she is espoused, which means she is committed to be married, but they have not come together yet. There hasn't been a fulfillment of their vows or of that coming together as husband and wife. And again, I can only think, and, and you know, there's a, an account in Matthew chapter 1 as to how the angel then goes to Joseph and gives him word of Mary being with child and how then he is, the angels basically, the Lord speak to him, Joseph, in a dream that he's not to worry about taking Mary as his wife. But again, too, Mary's response throughout this is just a willingness to serve God. Again, if she is told, you know what, you're going to be pregnant, this is going to affect the future of your marriage. I mean, she could have worried or fretted, but instead she is willing to do whatever God's will is for her life. The other detail that's mentioned is, is that it mentions Joseph. And actually, I just should backtrack just one point on, on espousal. It was normally a period of time before the couple actually were married, but it was legally binding. Normally, the period of time was about a year. And what would happen during that period of time of espousal was that the husband would be preparing his home so that when he actually married his wife, they would have a, a home together. And it's a great picture of what Jesus, the bridegroom of the church, is doing for us in heaven. The church is espoused to Jesus Christ. The church throughout the scripture is pictured as that bride that's waiting for again to the fulfillment of that covenant of marriage. And in the book of Revelation, when Jesus brings his bride into heaven, there is what's called the marriage feast of the Lamb, and that's recorded in Revelation chapter 19. See, again, to the, the details, the depth of God's word, all these things come together so that it is something that it can be believed on. The last detail that I'll just bring out from verse 27 is that it tells us specifically who she is espoused to, that it's Joseph of the house of David. And again, making the point that all of this is a fulfillment of God's promise. Two promises come together, and the first promise is that the fall of man in Genesis chapter 3, even though God is casting man, Adam and Eve, from the presence of God, from, the, from paradise itself, and now corruption has entered into God's perfect creation, God gives the promise of a coming Savior, of someone that would crush the serpent's head. Genesis chapter 3, verse 14, And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed above all the cattle and above every beast of the field, and upon your belly shall you go, and dust shall you eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, and it shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That's in there is a, a reference to the coming of the Messiah. And, he, and another place, though, too, that demonstrates not only the fulfillment of the coming of the Messiah, but specifically a promise is made to David. Back in 2 Samuel, when David's desire is to build God a temple, God basically lets David know, you know, you've been a man of war, you've fought many battles, there's... You know, you're a blood-stained guy, in a sense. And God wants David's son Solomon, a man of peace. Israel experienced peace during the reign of Solomon. 
Again, too, he doesn't want his temple built with blood-stained hands. Probably the best way for me to put it, simple way for me to put it. And as a result, though, David's heart is right before God. And through the prophet Nathan, he is told that because of that heart, and the Bible tells us that David is a man after God's own heart, that through the prophet then Nathan, he is told in, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12, when your days are fulfilled, you shall sleep with your fathers, and I will set up your seed or your offspring after you, which shall proceed out of your bowels, and I will establish his kingdom, and shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. And again, too, it's a specific promise, not only of, of the lineage of David and of a king always sitting upon the throne, but of the coming of one particular king that the nation of Israel had been looking for. Jesus is the only one that fulfills those prophecies and those promises. I just want to bring up two more things and then we'll wrap it up. And again, too, it's something, I think a point I made a couple of years ago, but it's in verse 28, how the angel salutes Mary. He says, hail. Old King James, hail. Now, I, I was brought up Catholic, and there was this prayer that we would pray. It was called the Hail Mary. And at the same time, uh, for those of you that are football fans, <laughs> who knew that I could weave in a story about football with the Christmas message? But there is a, a particular pass, and I'm actually reading this right off of Wikipedia. It says, a Hail Mary pass is a very long pass in American football made in desperation with only a small chance of success. In the Hail Mary pass, all receivers run straight to the end zone and the quarterback will make a long pass that is often up for grabs. The term became widespread after the December 28, 1975 NFL playoff game between the Dallas Cowboys and our Minnesota Vikings. The, cowboy, or the Cowboys quarterback, Roger Staubach, for some reason Wikipedia makes it a point to put in parentheses, a Roman Catholic, said, <laughs> said about his game-winning touchdown pass to wide receiver Drew Pearson, I closed my eyes and said a Hail Mary. Previously in the play, the, the a second, a last second desperation pass had been called several names, most notably the alley-oop. But again, too, Hail Mary. But here's the th interesting thing about it when it's used in that context with reference to football. It's something, it's an act of desperation. But in reality, I don't see it that way in the scripture because God has had it planned all along what he would do. And I guess if there is any desperation, it's on the part of man because we were in desperate need of a Savior. We are in desperate need that God would bridge that gap that Adam and Eve had violated when they disobeyed the one command that God had given to them. And in that then, as the angel greets Mary, he tells her of God's divine plan. I want to close with just the reading of something maybe you've heard before. I did a little bit of looking up just to see, again, how or where this originated it but it's many times read around Christmas time and it's basically a, actually came right out of a sermon but it's referred to as one solitary life and the author of it is actually a guy named Dr. James Allen Francis 
He lived from 1864 to 1928. He served as a pastor of First Baptist Church of Los Angeles from 1914 to 1928. He wrote a book entitled The Real Jesus and Other Sermons, published by Judson Press in 1926. He included a sermon in this book that he had preached to the National Baptist Young People's Union on July 11, 1926. In that sermon, Dr. Francis summarizes the impact of Jesus' life with a story that has since become known as One Solitary Life. Here is a man who was born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant woman. He grew up in still another village where he worked in a carpenter shop until he was 30. Then for three years he was an itinerant preacher. He never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never had a family or owned a home. He never went to college. He never put his foot inside a big city. He never traveled 200 miles from the place where he was born. He never did one of the things that usually accompanies greatness. He had no credentials but himself. While he was still young, a young man, the tide of popular opinion turned against him. His friends, friends ran away. One of them denied him. He was turned over to his enemies. He went through the mockery of a trial. He was nailed to a cross between two thieves. His executioners gambled for the only property he had while on earth, and that was his coat. And when he was dead, he was laid in a borrowed grave through the pity of a friend. Nineteen wide centuries have come and gone, and today he is the central figure of the human race and the leader of the column of progress. I am far within the mark when I say that all the armies that have ever marched and all the navies that were ever built and all the parliaments that ever sat and all the kings that ever reigned put together have not affected the life of man upon this earth as powerfully as has this one solitary life. I'll just read the last paragraph. It says, Over the centuries, mil millions have found new life, forgiveness for sins, and peace with God through faith in Jesus Christ. Today he offers this life to all who believe in him. I am the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus said, and no man comes to the Father but by me. And he said, He that hears my word and believes on him that sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death into life. That's why we celebrate Christmas, to remember what Jesus has done, that he came as a child, he lived a perfect sinless life, and there is forgiveness that is found in no place other than in him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your life that was given in payment for our sins. And thank you, Lord, that when we call upon your name in repentance, when we call upon your name and ask for forgiveness, and when we call upon your name and invite you to come into our hearts, that you take the throne that is rightfully yours 
in our hearts, Lord, and of all creation, and you rule and reign with love and grace. Lord, we are so grateful for what you have done for us. And Lord, we will humbly serve you until there is the fulfillment of that kingdom, Lord, until all the nations fall away and until man gives up in his futile attempt to try to govern himself and calls upon you as Lord and Savior. Lord, bless your people and bless the kids that have done such a wonderful job in bringing glory to you. And I just ask you these things in your mighty name. Amen.